0: Well, good morning. It is great to be with you all this morning. Um, Just one more announcement. We have baptisms coming up at uh, Lake Callas in just a few weeks. So if you have interest in being baptized, there's a class next Sunday morning at 9.30. So you can let us know on your Connect card if you have interest in being baptized. Well, yesterday, July 22nd, was the 24th anniversary of my brain surgery. You may have noticed a large vertical scar on on the back of my head. Uh, I think we have a picture um, to show this was just, this was me post-surgery. Um, it was July 22nd, 1999, that I had surgery at Henry Ford for what is called the Arnold Chiari Malformation. Uh, the surgery was successful and I'm, I'm mostly normal now. Um, but I'm, I'm always grateful on this day uh, when I remember the fear that I had um, going into that procedure, um, but how the Lord got me through it all. Um, it was a scary time for that 20-year-old. Um, but the Lord was with me. Uh, how do you know when the Lord is with you? If you, were to make a, if you were to make a list of those times when you knew without a shadow of a doubt that God was with you, what would those times be? And, and the follow-up question is this, what does it mean for God to be with us? In that list that you just began to compile in your head, what were the, what were the markings of God's presence? Was it because everything went right did, did God, did, were all of your needs met? Did everything go your way? If God is present, does that mean that there won't be any pain or suffering? These are important questions for us to ask. And Christians aren't the only ones asking them. People are in our world are, lo- are looking around, seeing all the, the pain and the suffering and that plagues our world, and they're asking, is there a God? If so, why, is all, why do we have all this suffering? If God is real... Is God really with us? Ricky Gervais is a famous comedian and and TV star. He wrote the original version of The Office, uh, the British version. And I saw a clip of a conversation that he was having with with Jerry Seinfeld. And Gervais is a professed atheist, and he told Seinfeld a joke that he had heard. And I should warn you that the joke is kind of dark, but I think there's, there's something worth us listening into. And the joke, as he told it, goes like this. There was a Holocaust survivor who died. When he got to heaven, he told God, I want to tell you a Holocaust joke. And God said, that's not funny. And the man replied to God, I guess you had to be there. Gervais was fascinated with this joke. For him, it bolstered his case that there is no God. Because if God was there, if God is real, then why didn't God do anything about the suffering and all of the death? And this is a question that we have probably all asked at one time or another. Is God with us or not? And this is at the, the, the heart of the question. This is the question at the heart of our text for today. We're in the middle of this sermon series called Exodus, From Captivity to Community. We're journeying with the, with the people as they leave the brutality of slavery in Egypt to the freedom of life with Yahweh. They're moving from a place with no identity to a place where they become God's people. And at this point in the journey, they have finally escaped Egypt. And they find themselves in wilderness living. And we discovered last week they are now experiencing what freedom looks like. All that they've known for the past 400 years is now behind them. Those ways of living are deeply ingrained in them yet. They have been shaped and formed by Egypt in ways that are now bone deep. And so everything that they experience, every way that they respond, every thought they have comes in response to what they experience in Egypt. And I know our tendency is to read these, these Exodus wilderness passages as, and to label the people as, you know, whiny. We call them out when they voice a complaint. We just want them to, to get in line, do what they're told, realize how blessed they are, thank God for, the, for their deliverance. I mean, if only they would behave like we do. When we read the text, though, in this way, we fail to understand what it is that they have been through. They've been brutalized for 400 years their identity didn't belong to them. They existed to enlarge Pharaoh's storehouses, their leaders always demanding more and more and more. 400 years earlier, God had delivered this people to Egypt to escape starvation and death. 400 years later, they are being promised deliverance once again. But will this end just like it did when Joseph died? Let's read our passage for today with this in mind seeing them not as a bunch of whiners or complainers, but as those who have been traumatized in Egypt and who have no idea who or what they can trust. Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, reads like this. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out, from, set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? That's the question for us today. That's how this experience was remembered by the people. And I think it's important for us to know that these wilderness times, these times between captivity and the promised land, are about God building a relationship with the people. I'm sure somebody in this room is keeping track of how many times a pastor says, it's one thing to get the people out of Egypt, it's another thing to get the the Egypt out of the people. But that is what's happening here. God has to reform and to reshape these people. If you've ever worked, if you've ever parented or worked with kids who have come out of hard places, kids who have traumatic, traumatic backgrounds, you know that parenting them, it's just different. It takes a lot just an incredible amount of time and an effort and consistency to build trust. Some onlookers might say, no, parenting's the same all the time. You just demand obedience and obedience you'll get. Well, that's just simply not true. There's a newer type of therapy called trauma-informed therapy. This has been extremely helpful for for parents, teachers, pastors, and others who work with kids from from hard places and hard circumstances. The goal isn't obedience at all costs. The point is to develop trust, to deepen the relationship. Trauma-informed therapy recognizes that people's actions are a response to what they've been through. I read an article recently about a mom and her foster child, and I want to read a portion of that article. This is the mom speaking. She says tonight, after, after two, two and a half years of living here, my oldest son sat down at the table with us. He was about to chow down when I stopped him and asked him what in the world he was doing. He said, I have made myself dinner, but it isn't cooked. I can, I can cook that, you know. Well, I wanted to eat something I used to eat a lot with my old family. So we sat down and I asked him to tell me about it. He said that they, they wouldn't feed him due to being passed out and he would have to make dinner for himself and his, and his brothers. They were two and four months when they came to us. He said that all the money they had would be spent on cigarettes and other fun things. And so he would find change in their van and would buy ramen packets at the store down the street. He was six. He said he didn't know how to boil water, so he'd eat it like this. And he actually grew to like it. So he would break it up for a sibling and would try to make bottles for the baby. He was six years old. I asked him to make me some. And I sat there beside him and crunched it down with lots of water because it's not great. And he just started talking about how the first time I made them ramen, he wouldn't eat. He wouldn't eat it. And I told him, I I remembered. He said it's, it's because it reminded him of his ramen packets and he didn't trust me. He said he isn't sad. He's not with his old family anymore. Those were his words. But that sometimes he likes to remember how strong he had to be. I write this, she says, so everyone knows. Trauma isn't healed quickly, sometimes never. And adoption doesn't erase the past or the memories. Kids can change, they will change with love, and never give up on a kid because they are hard. This this is what we're dealing with in the wilderness. And it doesn't matter that these are not just kids. These patterns from Egypt are deeply ingrained in every one of those people who has made this journey. They have been eating raw ramen noodles for years and years and years. And so in this story, we find them on the journey. God has been feeding them with manna day after day after day. God has been building trust day after day after day. Wilderness living is all about daily dependence upon God. And every day, there has been enough. But today... Today they come to a new camp and need strikes again. And when we read this, I I, I think that often our first thought is, why are you complaining? God has been taking care of you. God will take care of you again. But that's us talking with the benefit of hindsight. That's us talking who live in the land of excess. When you are living day to day, when you are in survival mode, all that matters is now, today. All that matters is the next thing. And the need they have today is water. It's water. It's not some extravagant request. They're not complaining because someone parked too close to their fancy car in the parking lot. I mean, imagine the amount of walking that they have been doing in the heat all day long. People of all ages, our kids, my kids, and quite frankly, me and Monica and every other adult that I know would be beside themselves at this point. I'm so thirsty. When are we going to stop? I mean, this is hard for us to comprehend. I think I think we are the most gener- or we are the most hydrated generation ever. We have an, I mean, we have an entire shelf in our kitchen just dedicated to water bottles. I think I spend at least two hours every single day hand washing water bottles. I'm not kidding. I wish I had a picture of our sink and what it looked like every day after school. And I know this is going to make me sound like an old man, give major major dad vibes. But in our day, we simply had a hose. That, that's where we turn when, when we got thirsty, right? You turn on the outside hose and you got that nice rubbery taste of water streaming out. And today we've got nail jeans, hydro Hydroflasks, and now Stanleys. I mean, to be cool these days is to be hydrated, or at least appear to be hydrated. We have water in excess, but we know, our city knows all too well, what it's like when we don't have access to, to water to drink. And so the people, they're thirsty. And they're not whining just because they're requesting water. They need water to live. And, and after all, they have been obedient in their travels so far. This passage began telling us that the whole community set out and have been traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. And now they've come to a camp, a place where God has led them, and there's nothing to drink. There's no water in the place that God sent them. I mean, it was God who delivered them. God brought them out. So shouldn't God have some responsibility to provide what they need for in their journey? What do you do when you're faced with a great need? Do you think logically? Do you begin to, do you begin to reason about the last time that you had a need and you, and you trace all the steps to remind yourself how that need was met? Well, the people, they just simply respond out of their history. They, they respond in the ways that Egypt has taught them to respond. And so they demand action from their taskmaster from the one leading them. And so they call out Moses for getting them to this place where they could die of thirst. And Moses, he responds like any of us would. He redirects. He's like, um, excuse me, this was not my plan. If you have beef, beef, you need to take that up with the Lord. But yet they persist. They don't know this Yahweh. They know Moses. They know this guy, the one that they can see. And this scene is set up like a courtroom and they are taking Moses to court for not upholding his end of the deal. According to all of the available evidence, there is no plan here. They are going to die. This has all just been one big ruse. They have been duped and are going to die out here in the wilderness. And it doesn't appear that they're playing around. For Moses pleads with God to help, saying that they are going to stone him. Stones would be the death of him. So Moses has been put to the test. Yahweh has been put to the test. How is Yahweh going to respond? And to a people coming from a hard place, having left their surroundings that they knew, even though it was brutal, it's what they knew. And now they find themselves dying of thirst. What are they they going to learn about Yahweh in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of this dire situation? God's response is a little odd. God doesn't speak to the people directly. He doesn't calm their fears and doubts with, with direct speech. Instead, God calls, continues to use Moses, a staff, and a rock. God calls Moses and some of the elders out from the people. It's as if they need to get beyond the murmuring, the grumbling, the group think, so that they can see God rightly. The leaders need to witness what it is that God is about to do. They need to get a story that they, in turn, can tell others. And the Lord tells them, beginning at verse 5, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it. The people may drink. Did you notice some of the things that God said? Did you notice some of what we can call hyperlinks? God uses, God calls to mind the rod, or the staff, in the river. This is a reference to when God instructed Moses to strike the Nile and the water turned to blood. And God has plans for this staff once again. Then God calls to mind a rock. Remember Moses saying that he would be killed because the people wanted to stone him? A a stone would end him. So keep this reference in your pocket for a minute. And then this is all taking place at Horeb. That's the place where God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. Weeks ago, Pastor Tyler reminded us that Horeb was that place on the far side of the wilderness where Moses was tending sheep. And that place that was most certainly nothing like the palace that he had known earlier in his life. Moses was on the outs and God met him there. And Mount Horeb will be the place where God gives the people the 10 words, the 10 commandments as we know them. And what, what I love about these 10 words is that they aren't meant to function like a, a, a set of arbitrary rules. In, in that culture, at that time, people worshipped many gods. And they never knew what it was that the gods wanted from them. And so they lived in constant fear. They, they, and so they made all kinds of offerings to try and appease these gods. So when Yahweh gives the people these ten words, God is giving them a gift. God is revealing God's very self, God's character to the people. It's an act of self-disclosure. It's meant to alleviate their their fears, not to impose something heavy uh, on them. It's a beautiful act of vulnerability on God's part. And here in our text, God is doing the very same thing. God invites Moses and the leaders to witness another act of self disclosure. God stands before them, but it's not God who strikes the rock. It's Moses. It's Moses with that very same staff that once turned the water into blood, that one changed it from from life to death. But now, Moses strikes it, and out of the rock, water flows. It's as if it's not about Moses or the staff or the rock. That which brought about death now bursts forth with life. And the, and the rock or the stone that Moses thought might be the end of him, it's a rock that opens up and gives life. Amen. The rock opened and gave life. In the midst of the wilderness, the place that was thought to be God forsaken, God gave the people water, gave, God gave them life from a rock. And maybe some of you are ahead of me already, but this got me thinking about Jesus. In many places, Jesus is referred to as a rock. He's the solid rock on which we are to build our foundation. He's the cornerstone. And Paul even says that Jesus was the rock that gushed forth water in the desert. And when Jesus came to the end of his life, he's led out of the city alongside a road in a God-forsaken place and was crucified there. And this is how John tells the story. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 34 Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Jesus, the rock, the rock of all ages, the foundation of everything, was dead. There was no life in him. Yet when they pierced his side, blood and water flowed out. It is blood and water that that gave life, that sustains us. And there in the body of Jesus the Savior, blood and water poured out. So what does this have to do with our question? The question that was behind the Israelites' grumbling and lawsuit against Moses What does this have to do with the question our text ends with, which is, is God among us or not? This story from the wilderness, according to verse 7, is remembered as the place where the people tested God. But when we read this, we see from our perspective now that this story can be remembered as the story of God's faithful presence. In the midst of their severe need, in the midst of their questioning, in the midst of a God-forsaken place, God moves in, provides for what they need that question, is God among us or not? That, that word for among is really asking, is God with us? Does God get us? Does God know what we're really going through? It's an intimate word. It's saying, is God in us? Does God know our hearts and our stomachs? Does God know us to the core? And the good news of this story is that God moves in among them and gives them life. In the same way, Jesus moves in among us, with us, in us. He dies for us. He dies with us. Amen. There's a book that I read a long time ago. It still haunts me. It's, a, it's written by Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel. The book is called Night. It's about his experience of living in the death camps of Germany during World War II. And there's a passage in, in the book, in one line in particular, that gets me. And I want to read a portion of that. He says, one day as we returned from work, we saw three gallows, three black ravens erected on the apple plots. Roll call. The SS surrounding us, machine guns aimed at us, the usual ritual. Three prisoners in chains, and among them the little Pipeel, the sad eyed angel. The SS seemed more preoccupied, more worried than usual. To hang a child in front of thousands of onlookers was not a small matter. The head of the camp read the verdict. All eyes were on the child. He was pale, almost calm, but he was biting his lips as he stood in the shadow of the gallows. And this time, the lager capo refused to act as executioner, so the SS took his place, or three SS took his place. The three condemned prisoners together stepped onto the chairs. In unison, the nooses were placed around their necks. Long live liberty, that shouted the two men. But the boy was silent. Where is merciful God? Where is he? Someone behind me was asking. And at the signal, the three chairs were tipped over. Total silence in the camp. And on the horizon, the sun was setting. And behind me, I heard the same man asking, For God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer. Where he is? This is where, hanging here from this gallows. There might be some, like Ricky Gervais or others, who who read this account and it just reaffirms what they already believe, that God wasn't there in the midst of those death camps. But I believe our text for today and the life and death of Jesus have something different to say. In the very worst that this life can throw at us, God is among us but not just, not just among us like God seems to be like hanging around in the same room that we are in. The Lord knows the hard places we've come from and the hard places that we are currently in. Amen. God doesn't come to chide us for our questions, but to reveal God's very self to us. I shared earlier that this Exodus journey in the wilderness isn't about getting people from point A to point B. It's a journey of God's self-disclosure it's a journey of God teaching and showing the people who in fact Yahweh is and i don't think that it should be a surprise that this lesson happens in the wilderness there are things that we can only learn when we are dislocated when we are removed from the places that we know i don't know where it is that you are i'm not sure what kind of questions that you have for god I don't know the hard places you've been. I don't know how long you've been eating ramen noodles out of the box. What I do know, the Lord, Yahweh, the one who knows us intimately, is among us. Jesus is in us. Amen. When I was working on this message, I thought I had it finished, and I sent it to Devla Victor, who who translates it into Spanish for our Spanish speakers today. Uh, so I, had, I thought I had it finished, but then I began thinking about the picture that I showed earlier. And I'd like if, if we could show that again. I remember, I remember the first time uh, what it was like when I saw that picture. I didn't see the image instantly as it took some time for the role to be finished. Then the film had to be developed and someone had to remember to pick it up. We, it's not like today when we see it instantly. But I do remember this, when I saw it for the first time, I was struck by something. I know that it might sound strange or a little, bit, a, but a little bit kooky, but when I first saw this picture of me post-surgery, I saw Jesus in that picture. In that hospital bed, surrounding me, shining through me. I don't, I don't say that to draw attention to myself, or to say it's about me, but that was a wilderness time for me. Glory! There were times when I didn't think I was hearing from the Lord. But when I saw that picture, I knew that Jesus was with me. What's funny is I just put this together over the weekend as I was thinking through the sermon some more. When I came to after surgery, my pastor was there pastor daryl blank and he said hello to me And in my groggy state i asked him to read psalm 62 and psalm 62 opens with these words truly my soul finds rest in god my salvation comes from him truly he is my rock and my salvation he is my fortress i will never be shaken the middle of my own wilderness there was a rock I know it's a kind of a heavy sermon for for a summer Sunday I don't know that the hard times take a take a day off take a week off they don't leave us alone in the summer but I want to remind you that there is no place we can go where Jesus is not present and his presence changes everything So as we close, close, I want to invite you to respond in some way. Last week we responded by singing, we responded in worship. But maybe today there's a response and an action that you need to take. I invite you, as Nate leads us in the song of response, to respond to the one who can bring life where there is only death.